right into it. Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast. I'm joined today by Ed Miller from First Union. How are you doing, Ed? Kia ora. I'm really good, thanks. Pretty glad to have you here. We're um, kind of entering a an interesting uh, economic time where a lot of large corporates, especially in New Zealand, where we have these duopolies and monopolies and uh, whatever other kind of opolies that allows them, and cartels um, that allow them to control prices and price gouge. Um, we've had these corporations making what are referred to as mega profits, um, excess profits, uh, and not really passing on uh, any of their success to the consumer um, and not being taxed for it either. Uh, and this particular case today for this episode, um, First Union have just released a report into the uh, energy companies. Um, they're kind of called gen tailors here, generators um, and retailers. So they both create energy uh, and sell it on to the public. That's right. Um, and first have shown that as well as taking uh, large amounts of profits from New Zealanders, they have also been passing a, a large chunk of that on to shareholders uh, instead of reinvesting it um, in, I think, even maintenance, let alone uh, more more infrastructure um, or new renewable infrastructure. What uh, encouraged first to, to look into this? Um, and what have you found? Well, can I just first of all acknowledge that it's a it's a uh, joint report by First Union, the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, and 350 Aotearoa. So um, we all work together to put this together. Um, I think from from a sort of First Union and probably from an NZCTU perspective, and probably from a 350 perspective as well, you know, um, it, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, of course, and um, I think after your rent, your petrol and your food, the next thing sort of in terms of cost pressure, in terms of household budgets that people tend to look at is um, is the, their electricity bills, particularly over winter months as well. And we've just kind of gone through a period of um, having the big gen tailors, the, which you referred to, the generator retailers, which are just for reference, contact, Genesis, Mercury and Meridian. The big four companies that control about 85, 90% of the electricity market in this in this company uh, country. We saw um a good Freudian slip there. No comment. We <laughs> we we saw this year that their profits essentially doubled, uh, more than more than doubled. It went from about eight hundred million to around around about uh one and a half billion dollars. Is that more than doubled? That's less than doubled, isn't it? Anyway, they doubled their profits this year. Um, and there was a lot of concern around that, particularly, you know, families seeing their winter energy bills coming in at the same time as seeing record profits being made. There was a lot of people saying that this doesn't make a, a lot of sense. And I think a lot of families were with probably sitting there saying, well, you know, look, they're making record profits, but at least, you know, that some of that record profit will be reinvested into developing new renewable generation. And that, that will, in time, bring down electricity bills. So it's not going to be something that we have around for us forever. Um, what this report essentially shows is that for the last decade, that hasn't been happening. The last decade? 
Yeah, well, the report looks at the period from partial privatization until 2021. That's the focus period. And we did that intentionally because 2022 was kind of a, a slightly different year. Um, and this was kind of the pushback that I got when I was putting out information about the record profits being generated, being made by the generator retailers. Um, sorry, I'm trying not to say generate too many times. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the pun in the, in the report title. That I got pushback from, for example, business business journalists who were saying things like, well, you know, a lot of the um the profit that's being booked here by these companies is from the sale of assets, right? So they're selling off chunks of their business and that that's giving them large deliveries of cash, which they, uh, that goes onto their um, net profit after tax. Um, and that's true. Uh, but it's kind of a unique year in the sense that it's one of the only years, well, it is besides 2013, it's the only year besides, the, or since partial privatization, when net profit after tax has actually been higher than dividends. So what we what I found by looking through the the data is that every single year since partial privatization, these companies collectively have paid out more than a hundred percent of their profits in dividends. And that when you add all that up over um, each of those four companies, each eight years, looking through thirty two sets of financial reports, that comes to three point seven billion dollars in what we're calling excess dividends. Right. So when a firm um, makes a profit, they have they can do essentially three things with it, right? They can either invest it into new plant or property or something, into new business opportunities. They can hold it into the company or they can distribute it to their shareholders. And most firms have to make some kind of a, um, a calculation on, you know, how do they maintain their market share at the same time as keeping their shareholders happy and, you know, it might be that they go 50-50 each year or they go actually more more common in, in competitive markets is that shareholders might receive, you know, 20-30% of the profit and the rest goes into, um, into doing new things or expanding business opportunities. But what we see here in the energy sector is that over this period, 2014 to 2021, dividends were 169% of profits. So dividends themselves were two thirds higher than the profits that these companies were making, which means that effectively there's no money going into expanding generating capacity. And how is that? How does that even work? What, what, is, what is the purpose of that? Well, let's let's go back to 2013. You had um, the partial privatization took place. It was one of the sort of hallmark um, political packages that came from the national government at the time, and it was supposed to significantly reduce debt. Now, the Minister of Finance, um, Bill English, was walking around saying that the sale of these companies is going to generate somewhere between five and seven billion dollars worth of debt. Um, that uh, sorry of of capital that can be used to pay down debt to reduce the government deficit, which sounded really good on paper, but it didn't even reach the sale of those shares of forty nine percent of three of those Gen Taylors, so of Genesis, Mercury, and Meridian, didn't reach the lower bound of expectation. There, they got four point seven billion dollars, and I think there was a sense that um, they had to provide a, an excess windfall to the people that have bought shares to ensure that that share price remained high. And I think that was what kept happening over time, uh, that de delivering these excess dividends became a crucial part of keeping the share price high and keeping the investment in the, or, you know, keeping interest in those shares. So that's kind of a commercial performance indicator, a critical commercial performance indicator 
Um, the question of how it actually happens, well, so I said before that when you make a profit, some of it is kept in, in the company. All of these companies had some form of cash available to them because, you know, they, they bill a lot of cash each year. So it goes into their accounts and that kind of thing. Um, and they probably have excess cash. So they could have they could either just deliver that excess cash as excess dividends to their shareholders or they can go into the market and borrow. And you, we have seen that over this period, 2014 to 2021, that the sort of net debt of those of those four gen tailors has increased by, I think it's about about 30% or a third, so the, something like that. Essentially so the, going into debt to pay out shareholders. Well, in the short term, they go into debt. And this is kind of the, the interesting thing that happens. But it, it ends up being a little bit like the housing market, right? Because in the housing market, we have... Um, you know, X number of houses. And because there's only X number of houses and there's X plus Y number of people that want houses, that means that that demand pushes up the price of houses over time. The same thing is happening with um, the gen tailors and with their generating assets. So every year they're able to get accounting firms to come in. And so you see that set of assets that's worth $4.6 billion. We actually think now, because there's no more capacity coming into the market, that that's worth $4.9 billion worth of assets. So that's a that's a non-cash um, income that they make. It's a paper income, but it means that they can go and jack up electricity prices as a result of that, which is converted into a cash income. So the next year, they have more money that they're able to spend. So they can either bring in more money that way by jacking up power prices, or they can they can borrow to, to serve the dividends. Does that end up incentivizing not building new generation? Exactly. That's the that's why we named that's the report, horrific. That's why we called it generating scarcity. At the same time as generating electricity, the gen tailors are in the process of generating scarcity in the market. The scarcity pushes up electricity price and pushes up the value of, of their generating assets. And crucially, what it also does, as well as you know, chucking a couple of extra dollars each year onto household energy bills, particularly your winter bills, it means that the the small number of coal and gas inputs that are that are in our electricity network are the crucial ones. And we can never build the renewable energy to replace those coal and gas inputs. So we're stuck on the system where we need to have a couple of coal and gas inputs in the electricity market. And the way basically our electricity market works is, is the highest cost um, unit of electricity sets the price for everything else in there, right? And when we're talking about the market in New Zealand, the highest cost unit are the coal and gas ones. And the rest of them, are the legacy power stations that were built from 1945 to 1970, where they take a very small amount of maintenance to be paid over time. But effectively, we have very low cost electricity that comes from those. So we charge out at coal prices and we get, oh, sorry, we get charge electricity at coal prices, but most of what we supply is very cheap hydro. So that's what pushes the profits up in the first place. That's perverse. That's a very good word for it. That's, that's it's particularly perverse, and it's it's why we haven't really seen much in the way of announcements from it, uh, the big companies in terms of expanding generating capacity over the next well over the last decade. Essentially, we have seen quite a few announcements within the last couple of weeks. Actually, there's been a few um, big offshore wind projects being proposed, and a few big solar projects propo proposed, but. Uh, as far as I can tell, none of them or very, very few of them are coming from the gen tailors. It's big capital funds that are bringing money from offshore into New Zealand because the high electricity price is an incentive to develop. 
but you need a huge amount of money to get there yeah. because you need to, you know, there's a long return project. It might take 30, 40, 50 years to get the return that you're looking for in terms of building an asset. And that's why the legacy hydro is so valuable because it's all been built and paid for many decades ago. But that's what that's kind of what we're starting to see now, that there's some some offshore players coming in. Is I mean you've you've linked it to the sale of assets, um, the partial sale of uh the energy companies uh, under the key government. Is it clear that it is it was the shift of kind of public private that has caused this kind of behavior? Or is that something which existed in some form even before? Um, move to a kind of more profit model? Well, it certainly seems to be the case. I mean, the, we have data going back to 1976 on the sort of the the generation that exists in the network. Um, from the period at which the electricity companies were corporatized, so we had, the, the story goes that we had, everything used to be produced by the, the, the government, essentially, and then they privatized Ele- Electricity Corp, and then they shaved off a bunch of assets uh, to make uh, Contact, which was fully privatized. So then you have Electricity Corp competing with Contact. And then Electricity Corp was split into three different state-owned companies, Mighty River Power, which is now Mercury, uh, Genesis, and Meridian. Right, And up until from 1999 until uh, 2013, um, there is some occasional excess dividend distribution. Um, but there, there is still expanding generating capacity over that period. I think it on if you look at sort of the, the cumulative um, dividends versus cumulative profits, then dividends make up 80% of profits over that period. And I think it averages about $97 million a year in excess dividend payments. So one firm will do a little bit of an excess. And that's quite standard in businesses. You know, you might give no um, dividend distribution for a couple of years if you're investing in something and then pay off your your shareholders and say, thank you for for sticking with us. It's all been worthwhile. So that's the kind of practice that existed there. There wasn't a huge amount of investment in generating capacity, but things were still increasing. Um, From the next period, generating capacity effectively collapses and the the scale of excess dividend distribution increases fivefold. So we go from $97 million. Yeah, $97 million a year over that previous uh, corporatized period to in the partial privatized period where they distribute almost half a billion dollars a year um, on average over that period. It just seems really bad. Yeah, and I mean, I guess one of the motivating factors for me in terms of looking at this, besides my my work as uh, a researcher for for working people in First Union, is that uh, in 2013, I collected signatures for the Assets Petition. Yeah, congratulations. We got a citizens-initiated referendum that we won comprehensively, right? Um, There were twice the number of people that supported keeping hold of those assets than the number of people that wanted to sell them, and the key government uh, proceeded regardless. Um, so I thought it would it made a lot of sense for us to do that kind of uh, a long term look at what the the benefits have been of that. Um, but I was I was surprised um, that we ended up in this situation where actually these firms are effectively liquidating their value, um, selling it up to shareholders, and then pumping up the value of the firms from the other end, which they can then distribute to shareholders in subsequent years. It's really become a wealth transfer mechanism from working people. Uh, working class communities who pay their power bills 
to shareholders who own the um who own the, the shares of these companies. I guess the one uh important thing to well, no one one of the things one of the important things to grapple with is uh, government's still a major shareholder in three of these companies. Um, yep. so fifty one percent and um yeah all the ones that aren't contact uh yeah yeah genesis mercury meridian what what percentage of that is dividends paid back to the new zealand public so to speak um or back to government so over the period of where we refer to this excess dividend distribution so um 2014 to 2021 uh we saw that there was a total of 3.7 billion in excess dividends that were paid out to various shareholders of that government made up 1.35 billion so about 36 percent um beneficiary 36 percent that comes out to about 168 million a year over that period or somewhere around there 150 160 million a year so it's not a huge amount of money um and uh, also like it's at odds with the amount they own (laughs) well they they own half of three of them so so right okay yeah okay yeah 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 um and it's the numbers get a bit complicated i can i can show you a spreadsheet if you like but um, i don't like but um i'll take your word for it (laughs) good good yeah i don't want to share it um (laughs) they they get a stack of money they get 36 percent. but for every dollar that goes into government coffers two dollars goes into private shareholders right so that's a government has to weigh up whether that's an appropriate kind of distribution of funds given that you know, it, it comes from the pockets of working people. Every every dollar in excess dividend that they pay, thirty six cents of it goes to the government, and sixty four percent of it goes to uh, whoever the shareholders happen to be. And we've got lists it's, of that. It's, oh, we do have lists because one of the you know yeah, one of well, the they're publicly that... listed companies, so they have to provide. I mean, their top twenty shareholders, they have to list. Yeah, because the... one of the um, kind of lies, I guess, uh, like not really a better word for it that. Uh, the key government sold and and key um, actively sold himself was that the shareholders would be mum and dad investors. Um, But I'm imagining that's not the case. I'm imagining this isn't a whole bunch of small shareholders um, that are picking up most of the the dividends here. Well, it it might be that there are if you look at the the list of the top shareholders, then it's generally it's sovereign, it's wealth funds or managed managed wealth right. generally by big banks, international banks, um, American banks, Brazilian banks, all that kind of thing, British banks. Um, but these are always, you know, Elon Musk is a, a mum and dad investor, right? Like, what, <laughs> how, how, do you, how do we define this? Donald Trump's a mum and dad investor. So, I think, yeah, no, for sure. Um, uh, I think the... Um, it's yeah, deceptive is, language, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course it is. Um, the idea is that it's everyday... New Zealanders. So it, an average New Zealand um, person is not does not have uh, hold a significant amount of shares in Gen Taylors. There, there might be a very small amount through people's retirement funds through their KiwiSavers, mm-hmm. but I would say by and large, most most New Zealanders it has passed them by. They're on the uh, the other end of that 
equation. They're the ones that fund the excess dividends rather than receive the excess dividends. But I, I think the the point you were making around the fact that government still has a significant shareholding is, is a crucial point, because if government exercises their shareholding, then they could probably end this issue. And there's a couple of ways of doing that. One is just through direct policy, but the other is to do it through shareholder meetings as majority shareholder in those three firms. What we ask in the, in the report, or our, our first recommendation, is that government exercises that shareholding in such a way as to, to put forward uh, minimum profit reinvestment targets. Um, and, you know, it would I can't believe that doesn't already exist. Like, I know, right? This is meant to be the entire cell of public private, is that it allows um, better use of profits to invest um, more effectively and more efficiently. These are the companies that we have effectively ordained as the guardians of the electricity system. <laughs> and as guardians, you would think that they would have some kind of um, energy security imperative, right? That to make sure that there's sufficient supply to so that when a polar blast hits in October 2022 um, and the HVDC cable knocks out, the towns in the Waikato aren't, aren't getting blackouts. Uh, we had this happening in, in 2021 as well. There were blackouts throughout Waikato. Um, <clears throat> If if we put an an energy uh, a minimum profit reinvestment target forward, uh, government could pass it through the shareholder uh, meetings, and and I'm quite interested in in getting a hold of some shares to put forward a resolution along those lines and seeing if government will support that or or come to the party in any way. Um, and I got some meetings lined up with government over the next couple of days to have those discussions. The next recommendation we have kind of um, follows on from that, so that the objective. Part of the objective with setting a minimum profit reinvestment target is that it reduces the value of those shares because their, sh their value is, is primarily sustained by the fact that they deliver excess dividends to shareholders. If we can get rid of most of those dividends, then the share price should plummet. Um, and then it would put us in a good position for our second recommendation to come forward, which is that the government uses every cent it gains an excess dividend from here on in to purchase back shares of of those three gen tailors so, so we get an increasing government control over the sector that is there no does the government not currently have like a carve out for what they do with the dividends that they get from gen tailors my understanding is it goes into into gen, general government spending are you kidding well modern monetary theorists might take issue with this because they would say that it probably gets it gets <laughs> money gets deleted and then it, go, it goes into a the the another computer <laughs> creates an equivalent amount of of money in a next door computer, but no, there, there's no commitment. And I think um, in 2019, the Gentiles had a very good year in terms of profits, and I think there was a bit of a, a response to that with the government introducing the winter energy payment, um, saying that some of that money needs to go into that. But we still don't have any expansion of of generating capacity coming from the from the Gentiles, which is the major concern amongst all of that. And it. Um, underscores sort of the, the structural dependence that you have on on coal and gas in terms of setting the price for the rest of the renewables in the market. And that's the third recommendation that we had that um, in effect, uh, and this was really uh, helped by having 350 as one of the, co the um, co-authors of the report, saying that we need to get those out of the commercial market. So we need to... Uh, in the process of buying back those shares, government needs to say, we want the shares, the shares that we want, are the ones that are in the coal and gas or um, generating facilities, and we want to take them out of the commercial market and ring fence them for a strictly non-commercial energy security 
basis because the argument that we, you always get when we say, oh, we want to have a totally 100% renewable um, grid or re totally 100% renewable electricity in Aotearoa, they say, well, you can't guarantee energy security in that context because it takes too long to start up a wind farm or start up a solar farm and, and a coal plants, you know, if there's a polar blast that happens with no, no um, uh, warning or whatever, you can just turn on a coal plant and it'll just start burning straight away. Well, if that's true and it's an energy security argument, then let's make sure that those assets mm -hmm. only work on the basis of energy security, that they don't set the marginal price, which uh, determines the profits being made from from the legacy hydro pro, uh, hydro assets that were built decades ago. That's... That's that's oh. the third. We've got a few more, but we can... <laughs> let's I have a chat all... first, because the, the yeah. next ones jump into the, the windfall profit discussion. All of those... All those three... First recommendations are things which I would have just expected to already exist. <laughs> <Okay. When, laughs> like, you know, just as like good policy, just as you know, these things need to run this way to ensure energy security, to ensure like the future generation, um, to well, to we, be adaptable we... in some sense, even. In terms of the second um, recommendation about buying back Jen Taylor shares, I, I don't think there's really a, a clear position from this government on terms of how they want to ask, answer that question. Labour were opposed to asset sales, um, and the Greens were opposed to asset sales as well, like uh, to Pati Māori, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, to all intents and purposes, most of whatever, of a, if we have another left government, coming up, though there was a strong commitment against asset sales, um, but they haven't really done anything about it. Uh, yeah. In fact, they've just let it slide. And the same, you can make the same argument about um, dropping the corporate tax rate as well, that Labour was opposed to going from 30% to 28%, um, but they're not willing to do anything about it. And I guess it's because it hasn't been an issue, right? It ha there haven't been big public campaigns like like well, I don't know if this is going to become a big public campaign well, there hasn't been any stuff now right there hasn't been any pressure on the government to do anything about it and they they're making money from it year after year um that goes into general taxation so it's not a major issue for for them well it's it's not worth going into the into the public space with a set of policies which maybe look a little bit radical on paper but make a lot of sense when we have the discussion and have to ha have to rehash the the arguments and fight another political battle on another front which takes time and energy um and will always require the establishment of working groups which are just absolutely toxic to right-wing politicians in the media right now so it's <clears throat> it's a difficult thing for them to do unless they're pushed to do it i don't think it's particularly politically difficult when there's a movement demanding it, I particularly gonna, with an election coming up. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how much um, do you think they feel locked by this one billion or so uh, dollars and potential arguments that they've created a one billion dollar hole in their um, budget? Which mm. they, you know, like, where are you going to get that extra money from? Kind of. Yeah, well, that's the <clears throat> that's the next set of recommendations. Um, we we said well actually one of them is an additional cost the other is a is a bit of payment so um, we said the government should make a commitment in the long term to commit the the equivalent to the excess dividend that it's received into household and community energy projects uh, so as to reduce reliance on the Gentilers um, and 
and to build up capacity in other parts of this of the system. Um, and well, First Union and NZCTU are both strong supporters of the the idea of having a Ministry of Green Works, and this would seem like a, a an ideal place to start the Ministry of Green Works. Obviously, we want to want to talk about the uh, residential construction situation, which is massive, but. Uh, it was um, part of the Ministry of Works that built the legacy hydropower mm -hmm. projects. You know the the state state hydro um, electric board. I'm not sure if I'm getting that name right. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> it's a million years ago. Uh, we don't see any barrier to a new kind of a new form of the the Ministry of Green Works having having a um, renewable energy development wing or to work with communities, iwi, that are saying that we want to put together projects that that support uh, us. Um, but we'd like to see that amount of investment. So that's probably another cost, which doesn't really answer the, the question of funding. But what we say in the report, why not invest or why not charge uh, um, a windfall levy on the gen tailors for their share of the excess dividend that they've distributed to their shareholders? So that comes to about $2.3 billion. Um, and in terms of, you know, the government's share of 150 million of excess dividends, well, that's two decades worth of of that it would be covered by the amount of money that is generated from that windfall levy. And that's uh, like that's an international policy at the moment. Like that's something which you're seeing either implemented or talked about seriously by both left and right wing governments across the entirety of the world. But it's something that as looked at askance in New Zealand in a, in a way that is very odd to me. Particularly strong uh, right now in Europe. And I think that Europe, you're seeing that the, they have a lot more gas generation, electricity generation than we do. So they're under the pump of having cut off gas supplies from from Russia, but um, Russia and Ukraine. But at the same time, what's happening is that the margins that the companies uh, who deliver that gas uh, are throwing onto those products when they get to the sale prices is, is significant. And when victim to this in Aotearoa as well, you know, we see the the um, oil companies when they reported, which was earlier this year, totally recovered from, from COVID and, and entering record profit territory. And that was the very early part of the benefit of the of Russia's invade, invasion. So the argument is kind of that those oil and gas companies are, are jacking up their margins in response to having more noise in the in the markets. Uh, maybe they say it's more more difficult to deliver product, but ultimately they're seeing the best profits that they've seen in in decades. Uh, the UK government has responded by implementing a windfall tax. Uh, the the UK very, government, the Tories. Yeah, the Conservative Tories. I mean, the the left in the UK looks at the scale of what's been charged and says, well, this is you know this is a joke. This is not a huge amount of money that's been levied. But it's a it's a political precedent nonetheless, and I think it's a powerful one. As you say, the you know the Conservative Tory Party have have put in place this kind of a policy, and it's it's about time that other governments talk about it. The Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, has been talking about mm -hmm. levying um, fossil fuel companies for their excess, excess profits and charging windfall taxes. Um, I think New Zealand could be thinking about this not just for the additional cost, but they they closed our miles and points as well. Like where's the where's the return for that? Why? Why do you think we have a we have a Labour government here with an outright majority, and windfall tax doesn't even seem to be like on the floor under the table? What? Why is that? What? Like, what is what is stopping that from happening here? 
there there's certainly pressure right so the the greens i think last week maybe the week before the it was the week before they released a profit uh policy calling for uh i think they called it an excess profits tax mm -hmm. um and then last week we saw a lot of discussion around bank profits which have reached 6.3 billion a year net profit after tax that is um and if you i think that's kind of a, an increase of 70 percent in the last two years um but that follows a bit of a drop as we we enter the pandemic um the government's immediate kind of response to that was to explore um open banking which i don't really know much about but apparently as a panacea to bank profits so like reducing barriers to to enter to providing banking services um there's certainly pressure on the labor government to start thinking about this oh, actually the interesting one is that they the commerce commission now has in the fuel markets as of last week now has the power to control margins on uh diesel and petrol which is quite significant because we saw margins at the beginning of the pandemic jump up to almost 60 cents it was, uh, yeah insane um and mm. then uh well, the they were able to drop them on a dime um, yes well they were issued a cease and desist letter from the minister of energy dr yeah, megan yeah. woods um, advisedly, I think it was a good thing for her to do, and and I think it's good that they've taken that. So the the margins there now, I think the they're saying that seventeen cents is kind of what they want to see as a margin, uh, a maximum margin there. But they were up to sixty cents at the at the beginning of that invasion, so they've been dropped Getting, to you know a third of a third of that. Just some of the things that big corporates have been trying to pull. Um, under the guise of oh, it's just inflation. It's I guess it's the government's fault. Is <laughs> like what what a lot of um, the coverage uh, about it has has been saying. And it, you know, it's just patently not the case. Um, what do you think it will take to get pressure to the levels necessary for either those companies to just stop doing it, um, or for the government to? decide hey this is, this is enough um cost of living crisis uh we don't need price gouging inflation on top of the the inflation happening offshore um we're going to put a stop to it well um i think it's interesting if you look at supermarkets where we have a duopoly so very little competition you know it's, it's countdown or it's foodstuffs and foodstuffs is pack and save a new world um <clears throat> One of those, so the Commerce Commission report came out saying that they were charging 430 million in excess profit each year, which is actually less than what we're saying the excess dividends of the Gentailers are. Um, so I think this is a, a bigger issue. But um, regardless, there have been some proposals from government, not necessarily bad ones, but they're maybe a little bit timid. Uh, although they've actually pushed out further than we expected, um, and there's there's consideration of the idea of of um, breaking down the retail and wholesale arms of of those, which would probably increase competition within those marketplaces. the The more interesting thing that we've seen is um, Countdown's response to us first union and collective bargaining has been a significant increase in wages. And obviously that was bargained and there was a whole bunch of factors within that. So the fact that that was a, a long agreement and countdown wages are probably lagged behind where they would have been otherwise. It was a three-year agreement. The, the um, 
the discomfort for workers of having gone through the pandemic and being essential workers and then get us getting essential pay cuts when the, the lockdowns finish and all that kind of thing. Um, and the highly unionized nature of, of countdown, which is effectively 50% density across the country means that uh, we were able to negotiate a wage deal, which uh, on average increases workers wages by 12% across the board. Uh, which is running significantly ahead of where inflation is at, although that's recognizes that their wages have probably fallen fallen below or behind uh, with a six year, uh, sorry, a 6% increase again, June next year, big back pay for everyone who works at, at Countdown and setting, setting the agenda for what a, a fair pay agreement is going to look like in the supermarket sector. Um, I think that's a big response to uh, popular views okay. that there is price gouging taking place in that industry. And I think it's only the fact that Countdown is unionized and wants to appear that it's a, a responsive player in the market, that they're willing to do that. And I think my back of the envelope calculation is that's about a uh, probably about an $80 million cost to Countdown on, on average per year. could be more. Um, that's back of the envelope. It could be totally wrong. But count, Countdown's profits on an annual basis are maybe 160, 170 million. So that's a big dent, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe they can put some of that onto the the food margins, but they're going to have to wear some of that as well. So, you know, that's part of why I'm in the union movement because collective organisation means that we can put some some countervailing power onto mm -hmm. onto companies and and try and get some some results. But if yeah, it's a really long way of answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe that we can put pressure on on government and we can put pressure on on companies to reduce these margins and to to make better outcomes for working people. But we need collective organisation to do it, and we need to confront the issue to do it. And we need we need to make sure that the Labour Party is working for us essentially. That that they are on our side and that they are made aware of the issues that we are concerned about, that working people are concerned about, and that you know we give them fair chance to to respond and and give them fair chance to be supported if they do respond to that i don't i'm i'm not sort of uh married to any political party although it's, it's there's probably only a couple that i could marry oh uh, that would say yes <laughs> <laughs> but i think we need we need to work constructively with as, as many of them as possible to try and get the the outcomes that we need to make life yeah. better for working people and not set the planet on fire so what can uh your average audience listener um do in this space uh, look, take the report, have a read, highlight the bits that you think make sense and the bits maybe that don't make sense. And you can send them back to me and say, I'm, I'm an idiot, but go and have a meeting with your local Labour MP. Even if you're not a Labour voter, never considered voting for Labour, you think they're neoliberal sellouts, whatever. That, to all intents and purposes, you know, if we want to left government next year, you can't do it without a large Labour turnout. Go and talk to them about what the problems we think exist in the electricity market. They had a relatively progressive platform a couple of years ago in electricity, and they've just well, effectively they've they've let it go because there's too many things to do. Maybe I don't know, but this is something that we can change and we can make a lot better. And, and that and, makes sense. And let's give them the opportunity. Let's give them the opportunity to be champions because if we do this, then it's like oh, we have an actual fighting chance of being able to bring down emissions and transport and manufacturing mm -hmm. and those kind of sectors. The future is electrification. We can't do electrification properly if we're importing a million tons of Indonesian subbituminous coal every year. Just it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, and I'll put a link to the report in the summary as well if you want to. Uh... Do some light reading. 
Fantastic. Yeah. How good so how good's the executive summary? Uh well it's one page. Very okay, there you go. <laughs> easy, easy reading. Easy reading. I did my best. <laughs> um get in touch with your your local reps. Um yeah, I and this is what it's coming down to a lot on these these big issues is unless governments feel like they have popular support, they're they're polling masters or whoever's doing their focus groups are not getting that information. We we need to be out there doing doing these this reporting, um, coming up with recommendations and then seeing an organized push um with as many workers as possible or um non-workers, um interested parties, uh putting pressure on the government to say, hey, look, this is what we want, do it and we'll support you. Fabulous. Let's do that. Hey, thank you so much uh, for joining us again to talk uh, economics and uh, my pleasure. Thanks. Really, <laughs> just take, keeping the lights on. Eh? Uh, any any last things, um, shout outs you want to do uh, before we drop this one off? Um, no, no more shout outs. I need to get some sleep one day. But <laughs> shout out to sleep, my boy. <laughs> nice. All right. Hey, that's been another episode of One of Two Hundred. Uh, check out the report uh, in the summary below. Uh, jump over to our Patreon. Give us some money. Uh, give us a share and a retweet. Let people know that this work has been done. That there are clear ways forward for our energy market, um, and that many of them work across multiple industries. Um, this is a really good place to get some of this stuff started. Uh, let's put some pressure on the Labour government to actually begin doing that. We'll catch you next week. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full The relentless routines Dying embers of your dreams is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism.